Welcome to day 321 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ezekiel 32 through 33, Psalm 127, and James 1. Okay, in Ezekiel 32 today, we have another one of our dated prophecies in the 12th year. So this is going to be, again, oriented to the Jehoiachin exile, we might say. That's year 597. So it's 12 years after that. And um, this would mean that this this uh, prophecy is dated is to be dated one year and nine months after the one in chapter 31 that we learned about yesterday. And this, like the one that we looked at yesterday, uh, is directed toward Egypt, and it is uh, considered, it is worded as a lamentation, and that will become significant later on in this passage. So the, uh, the, the imagery that we are given in verses 2 through 4 is somewhat reminiscent of chapter 29, where the king of Egypt is portrayed like uh, a, a, um, a sea creature of some sort, a tanin, um, or tanim, with, as, it's, as it's spelled here in Ezekiel, lying in the great streams of Egypt, of course, the great Nile, and as you can recall, pulled up by God and cast on the ground and kind of disregarded as as nothing. And we certainly see that here. He's called, he's said to be like a dragon in the seas, and there's that word again, tanim. You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon of the seas. I should probably note that the contrast there, the idea that is conveyed by the English word but, is not uh, as clear in the Hebrew uh, by any means. Uh, One could also translate this, you consider yourself a lion of the nations and you are like a dragon in the seas. The conjunction there can can and often does mean, mean and. And right off the bat, this dragon, or the sometimes actually it's, uh, there's been some commentators who will say this is, uh, is, the, is he being portrayed as a crocodile here? Crocodiles are uh, common in Egypt and in Egyptian iconography. Um, you burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, foul their rivers. So he's, he's it's a nasty, it's a nasty dragon too. Uh, Thus says Lord Yahweh, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. You see the same kind of idea, right? He's being pulled out of the streams, out of the Nile, and I will cast you on the ground, on the open field. I will fling you, and and just like there, he'll become food for the the wild animals, cause all the birds of the heavens to settle you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. So in the year or so that has passed since the last time, actually almost two years, uh, that has passed since Ezekiel last said something like this. Here he is reaffirming this, almost like uh, if you thought you were off the hook, think again. Um, and it and it adds to the metaphor. So not merely is he left lying on the ground. Here he his flesh is strewn upon the mountains. The valleys are filled with his carcass. Um, the The size of of him is is very evident how big he is being envisioned here i think uh, unless we want to say this is a, a very giant crocodile <laughs> the uh the the mythical uh flavor of this i think uh, comes out uh, quite a bit uh, especially in this part 
I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood. The ravines will be full of you. And when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens. And here is this imagery of darkness when um, something that seems immovable and um, and and permanent in this world, especially a go- a government of some sort, is overturned. the The stars become dark. The sun is covered with a cloud. The moon does not give its lights. And the bright lights of heaven, I will make dark and put darkness on your land. So here is another good example of this. Uh, fairly common prophetic imagery of the sky becoming dark in the middle of the day and that referring to some kind of upheaval of the social order or maybe more than just the social order the uh, more specifically the upheaval of of a government of some sort <clears throat> and uh, the other nations will look at this and not only um you know is it the idea you're going to become a reproach among the nations but also they're they're going to be quite disturbed it seems like here as well. I will trouble the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction upon the nations. Uh, they'll, they'll see and they and it, it will be um, uh, unthinkable for them that this has happened as well. I will make many peoples appalled at you. The hair of their kings shall bristle with horror because of you I, when I brandish my sword before them. Remember, we saw the other day with the uh, the arms and the sword. So here we have the the sword once again now in Yahweh's hand. They tremble every moment, everyone for his own life on the day of your downfall. And uh, in case we've forgotten the specific way in which God uh, declares that he will do this is through the king of Babylon. So the sword of the king of this will be the sword of the king of Babylon coming upon Egypt. Uh, I will cause your multitude to fall by the swords of the mighty ones. And here we have that phrase once again that we noted yesterday. Um, found also in 20, 28, 7, 30, verse 11, and 31, 12. Uh, we saw it twice yesterday, actually. The most, the most ruthless of nations. And that's it for Ezekiel using that, but it does, again, seem to be uh, a bit of a catchphrase that he uses uh, to for, for Babylon. Next, uh, as we've seen the concept used towards Israel, the land itself will have peace. But here, of course, the the prominent feature being the waters, the rivers, and uh, so we will have peace from both the man and the beast. No foot of man shall trouble the waters, nor shall the hoofs of the beasts trouble them. I will make the waters clear. The rivers will run like oil when I make the land of Egypt desolate, when I strike down all who dwell in it. Now, I should probably mention one thing that we've become quite a, accustomed to, uh, especially with salvation oracles, is the idea of what is sometimes called prophetic telescoping or multiple fulfillments, and kind of the idea that certain concepts run throughout Scripture and are fulfilled in various different ways, uh, kind of ratcheting up as you progress through the storyline of the Bible, through the storyline of human history, which is narrated there. And so, uh, although we might be able to point to very specific historical circumstances for the fulfillment of certain prophecies, that doesn't mean that that's the last one, and they, these ideas get picked up and recycled and, uh, and as I said, kind of, um, kind of increased in their scope and significance. Uh, we And again, we see this frequently with the salvation oracles, but we also see this, I think, with judgment oracles, 
where certain ideas and certain motifs can uh, become uh, what we might call types. And, um, and, and so when we, when we envision this kind of wholesale total desolation of Egypt, we can see historical events where this is where we're likely to think we're, we're likely supposed to think of that as, as their fulfillment and it's legitimate to do so. But the ultimate time when these things will be fulfilled will be at what we might call the last judgment of God as well. And remember in the beginning, I said that we, uh, we'd come back to the idea of a lamentation. So verse, verse 16 is very significant this way uh, because you have what's just been said, okay? And then it says, this is a lamentation that shall be chanted. And you kind of miss it in the, uh, in the English, but uh, chanted is the verbal form of the noun lamentation. So kina is the word lamentation that shall be chanted, konenuha, so it's taken from the, the verb is, kon, uh, is, is keen, um, the daughters of the nations shall chant it, there you have it again, over Egypt and over her all her multitude, they shall chant it, declares Lord Yahweh. So they're chanting, chanting, chanting. Notice the repetition of something of a lamentation, right? It's something that is said, not something that's merely spoken once. Um, okay, then we get another one of these dated oracles uh, in the 12th year, on the 12th month, on the 15th day of the month. So this is merely 14 days later than the one we just looked at. And um, something we saw uh, used of is uh, spoken of Assyria the other day. Remember, we saw like, um, are you going to compare yourself to Assyria? Think about how great she was, and you know, portrayed as this big tree, right? And and but I felled this tree, and this tree went down to Sheol. And here we now have a similar idea with a bunch of other nations brought in. And basically the same kind of comparison, like who would who would you say you're like? Because all of these other nations, look where they are now. Look what I have done to them. And the time perspective here is a little bit unclear. Is it saying, I mean, obviously with, with Assyria, we would say this, but we might ask, is this something that has happened in the past for all these nations? So look what I have done. Or is it um, are we perhaps um, being told to consider it um, in when the judgment of Egypt comes to pass? So is this um, is this something? Uh, the, the, is the perspective of the hearer who is considering these things? Is it at the time of the giving of the prophecy, or is it sometime later? Uh, that's a bit of an open question, but. Uh, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt, send them down, her and the daughters of majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. And then we have this in this invitation to compare yourself to these other beautiful nations. Whom do you surpass in beauty? And perhaps some of them Egypt does, others it might be more questionable, but again, the the, the point is Compare yourself to these other nations, these other nations that seemed very stable and these peoples that seemed very great. Go down and be laid to rest with the rest of the uncircumcised. So uh, this is um, the idea of uncircumcised nations that have been brought low. We've seen this said of Tyre in 2810, and we've also seen it of Egypt herself in 3118. 
So the basic idea is given in verses 20 and 21, they shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away and all her multitudes, the, the, the fish that were caught in her scales, right? The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down. They lie still, the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So that's what will be said of them. And then all these different nations, quote, are there. So first, Assyria is there. And um, again, we've Assyria, this has already been something very similar has already been said about this in about, about her uh, in chapter 31. And each of these nations, uh, they it's fairly repetitive. Uh, they have key elements in each of them. So basically it'll say X is there, um, all of her multitude surrounded by the graves um, and, uh, and it will call them uncircumcised. It will say they are slain by the sword and uh, that they once, although they once, uh, quote, spread terror in the land of the living, just like you, Egypt. So Assyria is there, and then next we have Elam is there. Uh, Elam is not uh, mentioned a ton of times in the Bible. Elam is a, a political entity, a, a, a people group that uh, resided in what is currently Iran and um, mentioned in, in Isaiah 22, Jeremiah 49. Remember, often associated with archery and, and known for its ar- the skill of its archers. Then we have Meshech Tubal, which is an interesting designation because Meshech and Tubal are usually separate. This people is probably, I would say, a bit more obscure than some of the others that are mentioned here. Then the pace begins to pick up. So Edom is there. Uh, the, and then very generically in verse 30, the princes of the north are there, um, and particularly the Sidonians. And then finally in verse 31, when Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. But notice the uh, the sad and somewhat pathetic idea of like what he's comforted by. He's comforted by the fact that there are all these other dead nations surrounding him and he's not the only one. And remember I mentioned one of the formulaic elements here is the concept of spreading terror in the land of the living. But in verse 32 has an interesting reversal. So who is it who really does this? Notice the first person with God speaking, for I spread terror in the land of the living. And then as you go into chapter 33, you see some more of the, of the reflection on the prophet's ministry itself. Among all of the prophets, Ezekiel is most reflective on, on the, uh, the role of the prophet in Israel's society. Uh, he's got these extended reflections, and so this sounds a lot like other stuff that we've seen, particularly in chapter Three uh, verses sixteen through twenty-one, with the the concept of the prophet as a watchman, a zofa, in Hebrew. Um, so the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, speak to your people, and um, and so now we've got the prophet as a, likened to a watchman on a city wall, and so if I bring the sword upon the land, God says. And the people of the land take a man from among them, make them the watchman. If he sees the sword coming and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then at that point, it's on it's on them, right? If anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, 
uh, their blood is upon that person's blood is upon his own head. Uh, but if the watchman, on the other hand, sees the sword coming and doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, the sword comes and takes away any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, yes, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. And I think it's pretty obvious what, what he's talking about here. Uh, I would like to add that um, one of the implications of this is that not hearing is not an excuse, right? Because the one where the, the scenario where the watchman does, uh, um, doesn't sound the alarm and the people, uh, and so the people don't hear, right? The, yeah, the watchman, it's an issue between him and God. Right? The watchman now has guilt for not declaring what is coming, and uh, but but that doesn't mean that the people uh, against whom the judgment is directed are off the hook because they didn't have an opportunity to repent. No, and this is, an, I think, a very important consideration to take into account when we are considering God's judgment in the Bible. Right, We're not judged for not hearing, and we're not even only judged for our response when we do hear but we're judged for our sin, okay? And it's grace that God offers us the opportunity for repentance and that God does send people among us to, to warn us and to, to lead us back to him. But even if he didn't, right, he would be just in bringing that judgment because that judgment is for legitimate sin and evil that we have done, so I think that that's an important thing to flag. And of course, I think that this is uh, very relevant to our own charge to bring the gospel to all peoples, to, uh, to make disciples of all nations, that that is not merely something that's optional for the Christian, but that's something that we are morally responsible to do, that there is a moral imperative to uh, be sharing our faith with people. Now, I've noted that this, this idea is a, a bit of an elaboration of what we've already seen in chapter 3, but then we get um, something that sounds a lot like what we saw in chapter 18 as well, and this is Ezekiel's unique take on this concept of prophecy not being inevitable, that they're the implied conditional, as I call it, So, uh, and, and in terms that we've seen before. So the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. So this is a righteous person now turning from his righteousness and doing wickedness. Um, but And then uh, the opposite goes for the wicked. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. So here you have a person who's got some kind of track record going in either the dire direction, and while... Certainly, we don't want to discount a good track record, and we don't want to ignore a bad track record. The track record is not all that there is. It's kind of where you land in the end, right? What are you? Do you maintain a path of righteousness, or do you maintain a path of wickedness? Do you turn from those things? And the interesting spin that this kind of gives on that uh, non-inevitability of prophecy is that you know we usually think of it in terms of the the wicked has an opportunity to repent but here also it's also not inevitable that a righteous kingdom or a righteous person will remain in God's favor it all depends on whether or not that person or kingdom continues to do righteousness 
All right, and then continuing in that theme that we saw in chap- from chapter 18, here we saw it in 1825 through 29, we get the people's response that somehow they see this as unjust, the way of the Lord is not just, uh, when in fact it is their own way that is not just. Okay, and then for the final oracle in Ezekiel today, starting in verse 21, here we have uh, another date, the 12th year of our exile, the 10th month, the 15th day of the month, and we've talked about uh, this as kind of an anchor point for uh, the timing of um, of some of the other stuff that's said in Jerusalem, but now the city has fallen, and Ezekiel finds out about it by a fugitive from Jerusalem coming and saying to him, the city has been struck down. And uh, Ezekiel tells us that the hand of the Lord had been upon him until the evening before that happened, and then God had opened his mouth by the time the man came to him in the morning. It said, my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. And this, um, I think, is connected to one of the early prophetic enactments that Ezekiel was given at the end of chapter 3. You might recall this one is a little bit more obscure than some of the other ones, but um, no less relevant. Uh, So in chapter 3, verse 25, And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make the tongue, your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them for their rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says Lord Yahweh. Okay, and and the basic idea there once again is that Notice it says you'll be unable to reprove them, and I I take that as meaning something like, you know, Ezekiel is a godly man, and he cares about what God cares about, and he's got some choice words for his people, but he is a prophet, and so God wants them to know that whenever they hear from Ezekiel that this uh, this is his word, this is not merely the prophet's rebuke. So, um, at any rate, this idea of him being mute is, I think, in in line with this idea that um, that Ezekiel is to speak only the words that God gives him to, and when he is not receiving verbal revelation from the Lord, he is to remain silent. And uh, and so the word of Yahweh comes does come to him now, son of man. The inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying. Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land, but we are many, and surely the land is given us to possess. So note that it's called a wasteland, so it's already been uh, been, been desolated. There's been, uh, God's judgment has been over the land, and yet they're still clinging to the idea that they have this unconditional right to the land no matter what. And this in it appears is strengthened by this idea that their number increases their claim on the land that they have by virtue of God's promise to Abraham. So if Abraham was only one guy and he had a a certain uh, claim to the land, well, look how many of us there are. Certainly ours must be even greater. Uh, Of course, totally missing the point that it is God who gives them that claim on the land and it is him whom they have forsaken. And the way in which they've forsaken him is then specifically spelled out. You eat flesh with blood, okay, so a a violation not only of 
let's call them kosher food regulations, right? But also a violation of the covenant of Noah. Are you going to do that and and then lift up your eyes to your idols and then shed blood and then possess the land? Like, is that how this is going to work? You rely on the sword. You think that it's your military strength. Verse 27, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places, okay, the places that have already fallen under my judgment, uh, shall fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds um, and, and in caves shall die by pestilence. So really it doesn't matter where you are. My judgment will find you out for doing these things, and I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end. Then they will know that I am Yahweh, when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. Uh, And then finally directed to Ezekiel himself, as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about, about you by the walls and at the doors of houses say to each other, Come and hear what the word is that comes from Yahweh. And the people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act act, and their heart is set on their gain. Okay. And so what's going on here? What's the idea? Well, the idea is that the people who are here, who have been listening to Ezekiel all the time, these exiles, and we've seen the exiles still have their issues. They still struggle, or maybe the problem is that they don't struggle, (laughs) with idolatry and uh, with, with violence and injustice towards one another and all kinds of sin, right? And yet they want to come and they want to hear from Ezekiel. And it sounds Uh, very much like what is going on here is that the people are viewing, they're coming to hear uh, Ezekiel speak the words of God simply as a form of like religious entertainment. Like maybe they're able to to have that kind of cognitive dissonance where they are not applying that what he is saying at all to themselves and just simply, oh, well, let's hear about what's what's going to happen in all of these far off lands. Like what is, what is Yahweh saying to you? And again, it's just become like this, this show that they go to hear. And one can easily see how that can happen. That, that, you know, I think we're all guilty of that to one extent or another, where you're, you're not taking what God is saying and realizing the way in which it's directed to you. And yet you like to come to church and you like to hear what the pastor has to say and you like to say, oh, that was a really good sermon or whatever. I think this is something that is that uh, very similar to what um, God is criticizing the people for here. And so Ezekiel is, is nothing else to them than someone who sings lustful songs and with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument uh, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And when this comes, and come it will, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Okay, let's go now to Psalm 127, which, to no one's surprise, is a psalm of ascents, but it is also associated with Solomon, and that is pretty rare, as we noted back in Psalm 72, the only other psalm uh, which is associated with Solomon, and... uh, so just want to want to note that again doesn't necessarily mean that Solomon wrote it but um the fact that it is of Solomon like what is the great work that Solomon is known for 
well, the building of the temple, of course. And so, unless Yahweh builds this house, those who labor build it in vain. Uh, but I suspect here that perhaps we have the same kind of uh, double meaning um, implied that we see in 2 Samuel 7, when David receives the Davidic covenant, because remember, Solomon is also strongly associated with that, right? Like, he's like the first direct king in David's line. He's the son who will come and build a house for my name, and there it's like house temple, house dynasty. And so um, I think that, you know, there, there it have might, especially being associated with Solomon, right? Like, you could definitely see the uh, the double meaning kind of being suggested here. Um, and the point, too, uh, should not be missed, however, right? Like, unless God is in something, there is, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually that thing will come to vanity. This reminds me of that famous line, um, I don't know who first said it, but uh, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And what a mindset to be in. And um, and then also, in, in terms of what is what truly protects you, what truly guards you, truly makes you safe, is it the fact that you've got really skilled watchmen there, just like we saw Ezekiel as a watchman, same concept here? Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And we certainly see that with Jerusalem right now, right? That, that they are... Um, uh, under siege. In fact, the city has just fallen, right? It doesn't matter how good their watchmen are. doesn't matter how strong their military is. Unless the Lord is there uh, blessing the city, that city um, is ultimately hopeless. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. So working really hard, working really diligently, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, there's an interesting thing, right? Because we kind of expect, uh, you know, unless the Lord gives fruit to your labor or something like that. But here, and of course that's true, but here notice the the interesting direction it takes it in, that uh, God does want us to rest. So the one of the implications of the fact that the that unless the Lord is in it, it is in vain unless the Lord watches, then your security is futile, and because you're trusting in the Lord for these things, um, you don't you don't have to run yourself ragged. You can uh, you can rest when it's time to rest. In fact, in fact, resting and not just filling your life with production is a, a very important way of trusting God. I mean, in, in essence, that's what the whole concept of Sabbath is about. Behold. Children are a heritage from Yahweh. Now, that comes kind of out of left field, considering what we've been seeing. And here, I think the connection is that, um, you know, we said I, uh, that you have the double meaning of house, unless the Lord builds a house, right? And it can go in one direction, can go towards temple, can go towards dynasty. Here, we see that the route towards dynasty, I think, is taken in the context of this psalm, like this is a truth that is in general true, right? But especially fitting when we're talking about dynastic succession, especially the rulers from the house of David. I don't think that takes away from the double entendre um, idea in verse one, is it the temple, is it the dynasty? But this psalm chooses to go um, in the dynasty direction with it. 
So children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And those of us with children can sometimes forget that. Um, but, you know, as I sit here minutes away from getting my kids off the bus, um, I, I hope to be reminded of this as I, as I see them and ask how their day at school was and uh, kind of wrangle them when they're home now. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. So it's actually to your advantage to have children in your life. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, fills his quiver with those arrows. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Okay, let's go now to James chapter 1. Now, James, a lot of people love this book very much. It is probably the most altogether practical of the books of the New Testament. It is no surprise that it has the most imperative verbs, that is, verbs that are commands out of the entire New Testament. It is from beginning to end almost um, uh, instruction, we might say, for to not use more complicated terms or, or something. It's also been connected um, a lot with wisdom literature, and that wisdom, you know, as kind of like accumulated knowledge. I'm not sure that I it's similar in some respects, like it's similar to a book like Proverbs in that, and here's another th big thing about James, in that it's, it's very difficult to discern a structure to it, to make it like, you know, to, if you were to outline James, you would have a lot of Roman numerals and, <laughs> you know, not a lot under them, but just like a ton of big things that it's about. Um, there does seem to be maybe a bit of a consistent theme in terms of, um, the idea that it is uh, building us into a whole, com whole complete Christians. Like, what does it mean to be? And there's different words that um, that James might use for that concept, like he does at the beginning of chapter one. So, for example, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Right? If that's to be you, to be your faith, here are the things, that the principles, the ideas that you should live your life by ethically. Like, here's how to to live as part of Jesus's kingdom. Now, uh, the author is a little bit up in the air. So, um, James, in Greek, the, the name is Iakobos. So, anybody whose name is James, Jimmy, Jamie, my wife's name, um, actually is a form of Jacob, Iakobos. And uh, there are several well-known Iakobases in the New Testament, um, some of them less well-known than others. So, you've got, for example... Like the father of one of the apostles is um, um, is, is one of the Judases is a James. Um, there's another obscure apostle, James the son of Alphaeus, whom we don't know a lot about. The two main contenders in the New Testament, though, are either James the son of Zebedee or James the brother of Jesus. Okay, um, now um, it's likely one of these more common. James is one of these more well-known James because um, notice how he doesn't he this letter is just written and there's no there's no further qualification on who he is so this is a guy who can simply call himself a very common name just James and expect his readers to know who it is that is speaking um, uh, so the the idea so 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 these two guys and both are kind of live candidates. However, um, as we know from Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James, the son of Zebedee, who is the brother of John, is killed 
um, he's martyred by Herod Agrippa I um, pretty early on. Um, in fact, we can pretty we can fix the date, you know, on or about 44 A.D. And if we're going to go that route, then we are essentially saying that James is quite possibly the first written of any of the New Testament books. Um, <clears throat> but for many, that does seem a little bit early for this letter to be written. And so um, based on that, a lot of people, the kind of the majority view is that it is indeed James, the brother of Jesus, and uh, talked a little bit about um, the brothers of Jesus. Obviously, when we went through the Gospels, we saw this guy in Acts. And um, he's a very prominent leader in the early church. He is um, obviously uh, presides over the Jerusalem Council in uh, Acts chapter 15. And um, Paul also, uh, when he recounts his visits to Jerusalem early on in his ministry, uh, James is there as one of the, the leaders of the church. So um, for that reason, I, along with most uh, commentators, uh, throughout history, although you know you always have people who dissent, and you know there's there's I'm not saying there's not a lot of people who dissent from this, but um, I think we're in pretty safe footing to the uh, to think of this as the James of the uh, the James who is the brother of Jesus, and um, there's actually even some uh, the, the, this is I don't know how much to make of this evidence, but there's even some uh, phraseology in his letter that seems. Um, that we might be able to link with some of the James stuff in Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 15. Um, so, for example, when he's addressing, when he's speaking there, he begins, listen, brothers. Uh, that's Acts 15, 13. And he, the same expression is found here in James 2, 5. And depending, of course, on how accurately Luke has recorded the speech of, of James um, or recounted to us the speech of James there, you know, like what he said, uh, there, uh, you would, there, you might have something there. Also, there is an expression that James uses, which is a little bit familiar to us, but it's actually pretty. It's actually only used here in two places in the New Testament, and that is the uh, uh, called by the name, okay, which James uses in two seven, and that's in the actual at the letter that the Jerusalem Council composes under James's direction in Acts chapter fifteen, and finally the greeting, which we were about to see, Chirain. Uh, Okay, James one one. That's how the Jerusalem le um, Council's letter begins in Acts fifteen twenty three. So I don't know how much we can make of those, but those are some interesting parallels. And to give credit where credit is due, uh, those um, are noted by uh, Doug Moo in his commentary on James. Again, Doug Moo, one of my favorite New Testament commentators, especially on the uh, well. That's pretty much what he works on the letters of the New Testament, and uh, so yeah, he's great. Okay, so James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And right here, we have immediately in the introduction an interpretive difficulty. So what exactly does James mean by that? Now, the dispersion or the diaspora, right, are the, that's, that is the nations to which the Jewish peoples have been scattered in the various ways in which they have been scattered. And... Um, uh, and so the, this would be, obviously, 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout the dispersion. Um, although it seems a little bit odd that James would be written, of course, to a Jewish audience, right? This is clearly a Christian letter, 
and it's worth noting that Peter also addresses First Peter um, to those who are in the dispersion, the diaspora, and there he's talking to a probably a Gentile Christian audience. Um, and so it's definitely not out of bounds to think that what is meant here is that the church is the true Israel, the true 12 tribes, the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham and to all the rest, to where, we, as we've been seeing all, all over the place in the, in the uh, prophets, where the, the nations are incorporated into Israel, those believing who have turned to the Lord. Um, it's possible also, and some would argue from like the early dating of the letter, that this could be specifically to Christian, um, uh, to, to, to Jewish Christians. So that's a possibility as well. Uh, but what's interesting too here is that this is, note that this is a very general letter. Like there's nothing in it that's situation specific, right? Like remember with some of the letters of Paul, we can like reconstruct what's going on in the background, all, some to a surprising extent. And uh, we even saw this with respect to Hebrews. But with James, there's nothing really that can pin down a specific situation. In fact, most of what he says, if not all of it, uh, can be taken as kind of a uh, general commands, like if you or and exhortations, like if you find yourself in this situation, then do this. Um, don't do this kind of thing. Don't do this. You should write like the general moral commands that. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why James has such resonance with us today, because it like doesn't even take a lot of um, uh, cultural transfer in order to understand what's being said, in order to hear. It, it speaks very directly to us. Now, that's not to say that other parts of the Bible don't. Of course they do. But James is just like more so. And so it appears to be kind of like a very general letter, like like. For example, the letter of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, right? This is written to a number of, of churches uh, giving instructions on how to incorporate Gentile believers, no one church in, in particular. So uh, that appears to be what James is as well. So he begins, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Again, notice how general that is. Um, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is, right off the bat, a very important spiritual truth, and that is um, the idea that God brings trials into our lives for a specific purpose, for the testing of our faith. And of course, the concept of testing there is the measuring of the quality of something, the proving of the quality of something, and even, the, we might say, the strengthening of something. And indeed, I think of some of the most, some of the best times of spiritual progress in my life have been as a result of trials, not so much of, uh, ironically, right, sitting around listening to podcasts like this one or reading a good book, although certainly I'm a big fan of those things. But you want to talk about, like, what really has the power to draw you close to God and to do it quick and to do it in a way really that no amount of study or contemplation or mere discussion can, well, going through trials um, is that. In fact, to such an extent that he can have the gall to say, count it joy, because you got to think of the kind of trials we're talking about, right? We're not just talking about stubbing your toe. We're talking about everything from like the kinds of things that Christians back then experienced 
um, you know, these these early Christians uh, fearing physical persecution a lot of times, social ostracism, being cut off from families. Uh, we think of how a lot of brothers and sisters still go through stuff like that today. We think of martyrs in the in the uh, you know throughout the history of the church, people who have se- had serious things, and the fact is that very similar to what he the point that Hebrews makes with the discipline of the Lord that that brings about the whole about holiness. And so the idea is not that you should think of your trials any less, but that you need to th- value holiness more. And what what it is that brings that about is valuable even if that thing is painful. And so that's the idea, right? Because the logic here is that when you when you bear up under trials, they produce a steadfastness that cannot be produced by anything else. And then that steadfastness, let it have its full effect so that you could be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some will look to this and think, you know, like, well, what do we mean be perfect? It probably doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, never, nothing at all wrong with you, right? That's probably a little bit too strong. While on the other hand, translations like mature here are probably a little bit too weak. This is kind of like, again, this, this a main theme of the letter, like what does a holistic Christian look like? A, a, a Christian, in, in fact, I think the best way, kind of the analogy that I think of is like toast, right? It's when it's done, it's done, right? It's 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 a good, uh, you know, you're, you're, or whatever you're cooking, right? Like this is the, this is the point at which like you want it to be, okay? It's not the, like some ideal the spotless spectacle of absolute perfection, but it's it's right where it needs to be, and I think that's kind of the idea. <clears throat> I note, note also, too, that there are two Greek words between the words for trials and testing here that can be—are almost synonymous, and um, this will become significant, but just notice the logic here in verse 2. When you meet trials, the word there is perasmos, okay? When you meet perasmoi, of various kinds, for you know that the dokimos of your faith produces steadfastness. So notice this, that what do the trials do? They test, okay? So the testing is like approving, and the trials are like, is like the word for the test itself, the word, uh, uh, okay, and we'll come back to that in a few verses. And then, you know, uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, again, I noted the the jarring structure of James. Um, we 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 could be content to just say that he's he's giving us fairly random but good pieces of advice, good pieces of instruction. Uh, and um, but if we wanted to draw a connection, perhaps one thing we might be able to say here is that in navigating trials, wisdom is required. Okay. Um, so if you if you really need some kind of flow of thought, I think that might be a pretty good one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. So that is an excellent thing to pray for, is wisdom. Think about the example of Solomon, for example, right? God delights to give us good things, and who can't use more of that? How, when was the last time you pray for wisdom in things? And uh, certainly, because if something is really catching my attention and I'm going to God for it, chances are I'm a little bit at a loss as to how to navigate it. So um, wisdom, something we should ask God for. And let him ask, not just it's not just what you ask for, but how you ask as well. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, okay? Now, no doubting, um, 
doubting, you know, uh, doubt in one sense is a part of the faith process. You know, how do you work through your doubts and everything? But doubt is, here and in other places in the New Testament, kind of like the opposite of faith, the opposite of trust, okay? Um, so there is kind of like an intellectual kind of doubt where you're asking questions and you're 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 wrestling with things, but uh, there's another kind of doubt that's like, I'm just not trusting God. Like, I believe in him, I know that Jesus is his son, but I, it's not enough to give him, uh, to trust him with my life. Like, think about the way in which he, the writer of Hebrews exhorted his readers to have the faith, like the faith of Moses and Abraham and Sarai and all those, right? Like, um, do you do you trust God? Um, and when you pray, you should have a trusting faith, full, full of faith, heart towards God with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Like if all it takes is a trial to make your confidence in God waver, then you are being a little bit like a, a wave that's tossed to and fro by the, the bigger sea that surrounds it uh, or by the wind that's blowing on it. Uh, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then here is, you know how I said that like the idea in James is that he wants to build his readers into competent, um, mature Christians. Uh, here is the opposite of that. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he's exhorting them from being double-minded, unstable, to being what the ESV translates, perfect and complete, uh, finished toast, let's call it. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So again, talking about trials, being lowly can be a trial, right? Um, and here, financially or lowly for some other reason, but I think probably is talking financially because notice it's contrasted with the rich brother, the rich in his humiliation. And this is very consonant with what God often says about raising up the poor and, and and bringing low those who um, have really got it going on in the eyes of this world, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, right? No matter how wealthy or well-to-do you are, that's not going to last forever. And <clears throat> not only is it not going to last forever, but also think about how subject to uh, losing what you have, you really are. Like, however secure you think you are, you're not that secure, because all it takes for that blade of grass to wither is for the sun to rise with its scorching heat, and it causes it to wither. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, then we have blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Notice we, we haven't really departed from this idea of hardship um, under trial, under perasmas. Uh, for when he has stood the dokimos, the test, remember the testing of, that this trial produces, he will receive the crown of life, which seems to be a way that is said in the New Testament, uh, spoken of as salvation. So this is the perseverance in your faith that comes of, of, about through the steadfastness uh, that trials produce. And remember, even the word steadfastness here, uh, this verse also has in common with verses two through four. Um, but the crown of life, uh, it's mentioned also, interestingly, in Revelation 2.10 and 3.11. Again, they're uh, not, not explicitly in 3.11, but definitely like it, it occurs word for word in 2.10. And then there's other things in the New Testament that sound a lot like this concept. Like Paul talks about an imperishable wreath in 1 Corinthians 9.25, 
Second uh, Timothy four eight speaks of a crown of righteousness. Uh, there's a crown of glory in First Peter five four, whom God has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, which is a little bit of an interesting thing, right? Because he goes on to say, for God cannot be tempted with evil. All right, we know that. And he himself tempts no one. And the tricky thing here is that there appears to be um, two different things that peirazmos or the, or the verb peirazo can mean, okay? It can mean enticing someone to sin, like trying to get someone to sin, but it could also mean testing, as in the kind of testing that's linked to dokimos, the kind of testing that's meant to um, to see what a faith what faith is made of, or to even strengthen faith. And here, the meaning seems to have verged into the idea of enticing to sin. So God does not entice anyone to sin. Um, there, there is always a way out. You always have the ability to say no, and the the trials that God puts in your life are for what? They're to produce steadfastness. If you um, uh, turn to sin instead, that's not God's decision. That's yours. Um, and so there's there's no sense in which we 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 need um, we should when we undergo trials think God is trying to get me to fall here. No, God is trying to make you stronger. Um, each person, rather, where does your temptation come from? Well, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And although, you know, we want to definitely acknowledge that Satan and evil spirits can influence us in certain ways, notice that those are not mentioned here. Now, my own desire is the first and foremost thing that tempts me. And then when desire is, is uh, it, it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, notice the metaphor of a person growing, uh, brings forth death. Okay. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, okay, as opposed to temptations, which don't come from God. The good gifts in your life do. Um, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow, okay, he doesn't change. He's not going to say, you know what, I'm going to get in the business of tempting people today. No. Uh, of his, in fact, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And the word of truth does occur elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in Paul, 2 Corinthians 6-7, Ephesians 1-13, Colossians 1-5, and 2 Timothy 2-15, uh, where it does seem to refer to the message of the gospel. And I think that's what that's talking about there. He brought us forth by the word of truth, that is the gospel, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this. My beloved brothers, second time he's called them that, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Notice the progression there, okay? Speaking and then, uh, you know, get, uh, using your tongue in a non-Proverbs way, right? And definitely slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't try to make judgments or to navigate situations or interact with people out of anger, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, that word of truth from verse 18, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see how he's building. Now do doers of the word. That word of truth, it's not, uh, it is the message of salvation in Christ, but notice that that word now is expanding into a way of, is expanding into a way of life a way of life that is guided by the scriptures. And he's about to get to scripture here, right? It's not just um, some amorphous word 
But uh, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, someone who just hears the word and doesn't do it, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. And you got to remember, mirrors are, weren't like, like they are today, back then. Um, but you, you might get a good idea of what you look like. But the idea here is you've forgotten what you look like, right? Like right away, like what was my nose like and what was... And that's what a, a, a hearer and not a doer, someone who hears but doesn't do, is like. Uh, for he looks at himself and goes away, forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, that is, doesn't forget, doesn't forget, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. Say, so don't just listen to the word, don't just read the word, do the word. Uh, you uh, stop listening to the podcast right now. Maybe I should have said that in like episode one, if you don't plan on being a doer of the word. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This also is something that will he will return to in a little bit, uh, just like he, he'll return in ne the next chapter to the idea of doing and not just hearing. But um uh, that person's religion is worthless if if he's not bridling his tongue. So that's one way to have false religion. But the way to have true religion, two things here. Um, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And I wish I could talk more about this and how this impacted my uh, what the Lord used to convince me to uh, to pursue adoption in my family with my wife. And secondly, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you want to know what religion looks like? That's what it looks like. Uh, caring for the vulnerable and keeping yourself unstained from sin. Um, you want to look what false religion looks like? It's evil talk. All right, that's it for today. I apologize for going so long, uh, but I hope it was worth it for you. I know I certainly enjoyed it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I will be with you again tomorrow, hopefully with a much uh, shorter episode. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care. Bye.